and with it. 1 Peter 2.21 begins, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. I hope that I can emphasize that with us this morning, that in many ways we should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed, even as Isaiah said. For you were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. I hope that we can have that kind of attitude toward the verses that we're going to read in Isaiah 53 and verses 7 through 9. This is Palm Sunday, we call it, the Sunday of triumphal entry when Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem. And of course, he died later that week on the cross. We call it the Passion Week. It was the culmination of hundreds of prophecies given of the Messiah when he would come to suffer and what would happen to him, as, of course, Isaiah 53 is talking about. Of course, it also became the darkest week, I think, of Earth's history. And that day that he died on the cross was physically dark but spiritually dark, as the world that was made by him knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And that week, when in the early in the week, they said, Hosanna, uh, glory to God in the highest. And at the end of the week, they were saying, crucify him, crucify him. We won't have this man to reign over us. And it ends in a tomb. And our text today will end at the grave, at the tomb. And we will come back next week and talk about the glorious resurrection, which the last three verses talk about. Maybe our world is a lot like that first Palm Sunday. I'm sure that this week... There's going to be a lot of festivities, parades, a lot of uh, palm leaves maybe uh, as they reenact this in the Middle East and other places. Even the right words said, glory to God, Hosanna, but a lot of worshiping of worship, as someone said, uh, from hearts and minds of unbelief. And that's the way it was at the first triumphal entry of Christ also. Even Peter for all of his boasting, for all of his saying, though no one else uh, uh, will be faithful to you, I'll be faithful. I'll never deny you. And yet Peter himself denies the Lord three times. But I just read to you Peter's uh, words when he was restored to the Lord, and he said, you follow in his steps, I'm going to follow in his steps. And I hope that we can have that encouragement today. I want you to look at your outline that you have. If you're here uh, in our services, you have that in, in your bulletin. And so the, here are three steps to follow in his steps. One is his trial, we'll look at in verse 7, leading to his death in verse 8, and then his burial in verse 9. So think about these things with me as we go through these steps that the Lord went through, and in many ways we can follow in his steps too. Again, in chapter 53 and verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Now notice, first of all, in this matter of his trial, that he is a man that is afflicted. I say that because we have emphasized throughout this chapter, he was oppressed and afflicted. 
verse 8, he was taken from prison. And all throughout uh, verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked. Who is this man? Who is this person? You have to go back up to chapter 52 and verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and so forth. And so we're, of course, talking about uh, the Son of God himself the servant of God who came to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Notice these words again. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. That word oppressed means to harass. It can even be used of taxing. <laughs> you are taxed. And sometimes we say, I was, I was taxed to my limit, you know. And in that sense is what this means, to treat unsparingly, without mercy, is what the word oppressed means. We've seen the word afflicted before. We saw it in verse 4. It means to browbeat. Remember that expression? To browbeat somebody and chasten somebody. Well, uh, that is what happened to the Lord himself. And yet, our verse says, in all of that, he opened not his mouth. Somebody called this his patient endurance. And all of this is happening to him. He didn't curse back. He didn't speak back. He didn't even complain. He simply took what the Lamb of God came to take, and that was the punishment that came his way as he bore our sins. Remember these verses from Hebrews chapter 12? Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And why? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be weary and faint in your minds. And so no, none of us have, have suffered the things that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered, and yet he did it as an, a man afflicted, and yet he did it for us. But I want you to notice, too, then as we go on in verse 7, the two expressions, one about a lamb and one about sheep. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and then as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. First of all, consider that he was a lamb led to the slaughter. You know that, of course. You remember John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Let me read to you Leviticus 3 again, where uh, maybe in your Old Testament reading you went by many of these kinds of verses. It says, uh, If a man offer a lamb for his offering... Then he shall offer it before the Lord. He shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering. Remember the Israelites saying, My sin laid upon this lamb, and kill it before the tabernacle of the congregation. You had to do the killing. You had to cut the throat. And then his blood was applied by the priest in the proper place. Merrill Unger, in his, in his uh, commentary of the burnt offering, said, This ritual sets forth Christ offering himself without spot to God in performing the divine will with joy and even to the point of death. Remember Paul said in Philippians 2, He became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. 
So here he is, a lamb brought to the slaughter. You see that word slaughter? Someone translated it butchery. This is what they do in the butcher's shop. They just cut it up and they just slaughter it. And that's the word that is used here. And that's why we have the blood of Christ shed for us. Let me read Peter again in 1.18. For as much as you know, you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, was led as a lamb to be slaughtered, the same that you would have in a butcher shop. And here he comes before those who are going to take his life. And then the other expression is, in the same verse, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent or dumb in the other version, meaning to submit to silence, to put yourself to silence. Now, one writer quoted Philo, who's an ancient church historian, and Philo was speaking about watching lambs being sheared back in those days. And he said this, woolly lambs laden thick with fleeces put themselves into the hands, that is, into the shepherd, to have their wool shorn, being thus accustomed, I like this expression, to pay their yearly tribute to man, <laughs> their king by nature. Here's my offering to you, Mr. Shepherd. The sheep stands in a silent, inclining position, unconstrained under the hand of the shearer. These things may appear strange to those who do not know the docility of the sheep, but they are true. So think, if you will, this lamb coming to the shepherd once a year in the springtime of the year when they sheared the lambs, and it was surely an uh, a, a uncomfortable thing in those days before the electric shearers and those things that we have these days with the old tools that they had. You could call it dishonoring. He's going to be disclothed. He's going, uh, that, that clothe, that, that, that wool coat that he's had all winter is now going to be taken off scars and nicks and blood uh, perhaps around it left and the exposure is there uh, it wasn't really a happy time but the sheep came and and gave himself uh, as, as he said paying his yearly tribute to the shepherd you know also just thinking of shearing sheep uh, evidently it was also a relief to the to the sheep because he wears this wool coat all winter, but you don't want that thing all summer. Uh, you don't want the rain uh, weighing you down. You don't want that hot. As a matter of fact, if, he, if you left that wool on the sheep all summer, he probably couldn't make it through the summer. And so you shear him. You take him down to nothing. And then uh, he can live through the summertime, and he grows his coat again for next winter. And they do that every spring, and that's the reason why. Maybe that's part of why we find out when Jesus suffered, it says, the joy that was set before him. What's coming after this is what I'm after. I'm, I'm after the time when I'm set down at the right hand of the Father, like a sheep being sheared so that he can live through the summer. So he comes as a sheep to be sheared. Let me make an application here, if I can, to, to, to you who are listening. You know, God shears all of his sheep, and you are God's sheep. 
and we are sheared by our shepherd too. Oh, we can't pay for anybody's sins, but God takes us to, uh, to the woodshed now and then, doesn't he? And God uh, shears us of those things that weigh us down. And it's not always pleasant when God takes you through trials, when God teaches you things, when God even chastises you or punishes you for things. And yet there's a reason for it. It may be uncomfortable. It may, you may feel like you're exposed because your sins are exposed before God. But God takes you through those times because it's good for you. Because this is what you need for the time ahead. And we ought to submit ourselves also to the shepherd and, if you will, pay our yearly tribute to him. Because the trial that you have is your offering to God. The trial that he brings you through as he fleeces you is to say, Lord, this belongs to you. What I was withholding, I'll give back to you. And he does that for our sakes too. So his trial as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep to be sheared, uh, was done for us. Now notice, secondly, his death in verse 8. This is the second step that Peter tells us to follow. And so we have in verse 8 that he was taken from prison and from judgment. Who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living, but for the transgressions of my people, Isaiah says, he was stricken. Notice now his death. In this time of death, he was taken from judgment. He was taken from prison where he was held, and he's taken, uh, this verse says, from justice. You might have the word justice in a translation. It's the same word as judgment. It means to be uh, that your sentence is taken away, your recourse, you have no appeal. And that's what the writer is saying here about Jesus as the Lamb of God. He has, he has no way to defend himself. He has no way to make an appeal and say, uh, I, want, I want to say something here. He's silent before her, his shearers, and they take full advantage of it. So it's an amazing thing when you think about it. As a matter of fact, in, in uh, Acts chapter 8, where when... Uh, Howard read to us, it reminded us of the story of the Ethiopian. When they read the verse there in Acts 8.33, it says, In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? His life is taken from the earth. He had no recourse, nothing to say. You know, also, that is a way that we can follow the Savior. I'm going to turn back to uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, and uh, read to you, and, and you're welcome to go there with me if you can. In 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, here's the way Peter applies this to our lives. 1 Peter 4, 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. Now, always remember when the Bible speaks of us as being partakers of his sufferings, we're not paying for anybody's sin, including our own. But it's just that the, the suffering that was piled upon him sometimes falls over onto us. And if we identify with him, then we will suffer uh, similar things. So, 
He says, Rejoice as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with him with exceeding joy. Our time of rejoicing is coming. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. Really? If your justice is taken away, if you're reproached for the name of Christ and you have no way to defend yourself, you have nothing to say, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he's blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. That's a great thing, isn't it? You know, I think sometimes we, uh, even, you know, here in America, in a country that has been free, uh, sometimes we think that our joy depends on our country that our joy depends on whether there, there's a lack of, of suffering in our country. No, our joy depends on the Lord. And why should we think that we're exempt uh, if we name the name of Christ from any suffering when the Lord himself wasn't exempt from it? His justice was taken away. Our justice could be taken away too. But we will still rejoice in what we have in him. So there's a missing justice, I called it here in our outline, a missing justice. And then secondly, an ignorant generation, because verse 8 says, who will declare his generation? It's kind of like saying, who among his generation thought that this would be the case? What about this servant that Isaiah is talking about? Who has believed our report? Who even believed that this could happen to our Messiah? Verse 3, he's despised and rejected of men. By us, this has happened to him. May I remind you again in the Gospels of what happened. In Matthew alone, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26 and verse 66, the high priest uh, interrogates Jesus and then says, What do you think? And they answered and said, He's guilty of death. Who can declare that generation? Who can understand a generation where the Messiah comes and is ready to die for them and they say, He's guilty of death. Let him die. Matthew 27, 22, he's in front of Pilate. And Pilate said, what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they said, let him be crucified. And Pilate says, why? What, e what evil has he done? But they cried out the more, saying, let him be crucified. Who can declare a generation like that? And then, uh, if you will, in, in Psalm 22, where you have a recording of the sufferings of Christ also, in verses 7 and 8, the whole crowd is saying, All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him and see if he delights in him. Who can declare a generation like that? You remember that they stood around the cross and said, Well, if he's really the Son of God, let him save himself and come down off the cross. And the irony of that is that had he saved himself, he wouldn't have saved any of us. But because he submitted himself to what he was suffering, we have eternal life. And so here is this, if you will, ignorant generation, a generation that doesn't know the Lord. There's some sad words in Matthew 23 where Jesus in the last week, stands and looks over Jerusalem. You remember these words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, 
How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Behold, he says, your house is left to you desolate. And the reason the Romans came in and destroyed that city in 70 A.D. was because this generation of Jews would not accept their own Messiah. Who can declare a generation like that, our author is saying. But then, at the end of verse 8, notice he says, For the transgressions of my people, I think Isaiah is speaking of himself here and then of his people, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And I have here of, of vicarious sacrifice. You see the word for. Don't miss that little word for. For our sins, for mine, for the sins of my people. Let me go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ hath once suffered for sins the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by God in the spirit. That is called substitution, folks. We believe in the doctrine of substitution. Christ was your substitute. You should have died there. We should have died there for our sins. But he died for us. And that's why I say a vicarious sacrifice that you have here at the end, that for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Amazing, isn't it? You know that God could have stopped it? Even Jesus himself said, uh, I could call 12 legions of angels and, and uh, they would come and, and take me away. Do you know that God, by the wink of his eye, could have destroyed them all in an instant? And could have delivered his son from the cross? And why didn't he? I like what Spurgeon said at this point. He said, he being Christ, restrained omnipotence itself with a strength that can never be measured. For his mighty love availed even to restrain divine wrath. Jesus himself who laid his life on the cross. He was the one who said, I lay down my life, no man takes it from me. And the divine omnipotence that could have destroyed them all, he held off and said, no, let me do this for them. And he died uh, for people. It pleased the Lord to bruise him then, verse 10 is going to say. So here is his trial and here is his death. And one more step that we have to follow is in verse 9, and that is his burial. Remember that this Passion Week, when we talk about his triumphal entry, here, here they were on Sunday morning singing and praising and waving palm branches uh, and laying their garments before him as he rides into Jerusalem as a king would ride in. And days later, they're going to be saying, crucify him, we'll not have this man to reign over us. I notice, first of all, in verse 9, what I call their continuing animus, that is their anger, their threatening. And they say, they made his grave with the wicked. Some translations have he, some have they, with the wicked. They intended to bury him with these two thieves on either side of him and throw him out in the trash, if you will, like they did with slaves that were crucified. They didn't deserve burial. They didn't deserve respect. 
They had down at the, at the bottom of the city, the Valley of Hinnom, that was a burning trash pile, and that's where people threw their trash, and that's where they threw the criminals and the dead bodies if they wanted to, and let them burn up in the trash pile. Or they left them out in some ditch or some hillside somewhere so the vultures and the birds could pick them to death and the, the ravenous animals could eat them. And that's what they thought they would do with Jesus. That's what you do with, with Roman criminals who are crucified. And so that's why they made his grave with the wicked. And of course, you remember that there were two wicked men died with him, right? One of them uh, said, Lord, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. I always wonder how people can believe in this thing called soul sleep, that when you die, uh, you have no consciousness uh, until resurrection day. No, Jesus said, today you and I will be in paradise. You'll be with me in paradise. But the other and, and no doubt his body, even though he was a believer then and his soul went to heaven, his body and the body of that other slave thrown out into the trash. And that's what they would have done with Jesus. Imagine, we're, we're even going to persecute him after death. We're going to treat him like a criminal even after he dies. We're not going to give him any uh, reverence or thought at all and let anybody think uh, that about him. It's kind of a terrible thing when you think about it. Do you remember in Revelation chapter 11 that the two prophets who are prophesying for three and a half years, finally God allows the Antichrist to kill them in Jerusalem in Revelation 11, and it says their bodies are left in the street for three and a half days. Imagine the cruelty of that in a, in a modern day, which it will be, that their bodies are left there. People can kick them. People can spit on them. People can do whatever they want to those two prophets of God. It's just kind of a sad part of human nature, isn't it? As a matter of fact, I, I remember when King Saul died in the Old Testament. And Saul uh, was killed by the Philistines finally. And so what do the Philistines do? Well, they cut off his head and start passing the head around. And then they take his body back to the temple of their god, Dagon, and they nail it to the wall and mistreat it until somebody came later and rescued it. It's just human nature to do this with people you despise. And that was the plan for the Lord himself the creator of all the world, God become man in the flesh. Well, secondly, you notice that there's an intervening providence. God didn't let that happen, did he? But, he says, with the rich in his death. I'm not going to let that happen. As a matter of fact, I've got my man already in place, and uh, his name is Joseph of Arimathea, and there's another man named Nicodemus, and they're going to come and take his body off the cross early instead of laying it, uh, letting it lie around. And they're going to bury him in Joseph's tomb, that rich man's tomb. And so it was that this rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, also himself being Jesus' disciple, came and took the body of Christ. And so, in actuality, he was buried with the rich. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. And that is the way it should be. And, you know, even after that, the, 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 the Jews said, let's guard that tomb and make sure 
uh, that nothing happens to that body that we don't want to happen to that body. And God even oversaw that, of course, with the angels coming and, and, the, and the soldiers had to drop to the ground and the stone rolled away and the body came out. What could they do against God's omnipotence at that point? And so the intervening providence was a great thing. Remember I quoted you an older writer named J.A. Alexander. He said it like this, As the Messiah was to die like a criminal, he might have expected to be buried like one, and his exemption from his posthumous dishonor was occasioned by a special providential interference. God said, I'm not going to let that happen to his body. And they took care of it. Well, one more thing and one last point in this third part in verse 9. Because if you have in the first part of the verse, they decided to do this, but providence intervened. Now, why did God intervene? Because he had done no violence, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And I simply labeled that Christ's lasting glory because he was innocent, because this is the one who did everything God wanted him to do. Every time God asked him to suffer, he suffered. Everything that he had to pay for, he paid for. Everything that, that God in the flesh could do for us, he did. And he was innocent. Remember again, Paul saying in Philippians 2, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because he's innocent. Even though he suffered that death, and that is the death of a cross. He did no sin, Peter said, neither was guile found in his mouth. And that brings us to the end of verse 9 where we stop today. And so we ought to have a note uh, in a Bible that says, to be continued. <laughs> because the story's not done. The story's not done in verse 9 any more than the story was done on Thursday night or Friday night when Jesus died. Sunday's coming. And verses 10 through 12 are coming next week. So we'll continue that. Let me end then with this thought since we've tried to make application from this passage to ourselves also. In this triumphal entry, they were, they were saying at the beginning, Hosanna, which in Hebrew means save us now. You come and save us now. And at the end of the week, they're crying, crucify him, crucify him. I wonder how many times you've heard the gospel and not accepted it. If you're listening to my voice this morning, maybe you're someone that you've heard someone say to you, you must be born again, but you said no. You've heard once somebody say that you must be saved in order to have eternal life, and you said no. Then you've done the same thing they did. At one point hearing the hosannas and at another point saying, no, not for me. Go ahead and crucify him. Don't crucify me. Crucify him. And that's what you've done every time that you've heard the gospel and not accepted it. But Paul said, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. If you hear this message and refuse it, then your soul could be lost forever and it will be your fault. And so if he's come to you 
and brought uh, salvation message to you so that you can accept this substitute, this Lamb of God that was slaughtered for you, this Lamb of God that took your place, then accept him today that he might be your Savior also. I'm going to ask the congregation to stand, and let's stand and go to the Lord in prayer and ask his help and blessing on the time that we sing of an invitation and think about these things. Father, how we thank you for this wonderful passage. And even, Father, in this uh, traditional Passion Week, when we think about the sufferings of Christ, and even on this Sunday that we call the triumphal entry of Christ, uh, Father, we know that it ends in a sad day on the cross of Calvary. No worse day in earth's history than that. And so, Father, we thank you for Sunday, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, Father, also we think now of ourselves, that, that someone who doesn't know Christ as Savior has crucified the Son of God afresh to himself and has not accepted Sunday morning the resurrection. I pray that someone hearing this message would. And then help us, Father, as, as children of yours, as also sheep of your pasture. You are our shepherd. And help us to follow his steps and to walk in his ways and do these things in our own lives also. We'll thank you for these things and praise you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a song of invitation. Of course, our invitation is always open. Uh, you may respond even while we sing or as the service is closed. You respond to this in the way that the Lord has led you to do.